0: Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our West Conway campus. Thanks for listening. First Thessalonians is where we're going to be as you're turning there. Let me ask you this question. Can you, in your mind, go back And you go back to a time or to a day when you were a kid, you know, and you uh, got to spend the night or stay the day over at your friend's house for the first time. Like a school friend's house uh, for the first time. Like maybe a long day. Like mom dropped you you off on a a Saturday morning. You were going to spend the whole day there or you got to spend the night. Y'all remember this? Anybody did that? Okay, good. Um... When we did that as kids we didn't really think a lot into it, but now looking back I was sort of thinking about this and the way in which that experience sort of introduced us to a whole new culture and to a whole new people, the way their lives were, that sort of thing. Like there's a bunch of reasons for this. Like I can think of some in particular Kyle uh, I'd, I'd hang out at his house or Jason or Timothy. Um, I remember going into Kyle's house and just the feeling of it. It was a much larger house than the house that we lived in. Kyle was sort of like, uh, like, like the big shot in our little friend group, you know. But at Kyle's house, Kyle was the younger brother. And so we, he and I were not the big shots of anything, right? The big brothers were picking on us. And so there was this whole change in the leadership dynamic that was going on. Also being around uh, Mr. Fitzpatrick, Kyle's dad, you know, that was different. I, I I knew he had a dad, but now his dad is there, you know, and there's rules and that sort of stuff. Uh, in my house growing up, we, we prayed before meals, every meal we would pray, but at the Fitzpatrick's house, they would hold hands um, before prayer. You ever, you ever got in that situation? Like, oh, okay, we're doing this. All right. So you're like holding hands and you're like, um, very awkward. You're sitting by your best school buddy, you know, and holding his hand. And you're a little boy and you're like, I don't want to hold Kyle's hand. Right. You know, all those kind of dynamics that's going on. But you kind of feel the culture of that family. You feel sort of what's going on in that family. And you begin to understand sort of what they're about. How your friend got the way that he is right and the sort of the impact that they have on your life and school and stuff like that It's it's different and uh, we didn't think about it Like I said as kids you didn't think through it that way, but if you look back you start to see sort of the idea of Introducing yourself to a new culture, right? And I think this is happening on a larger scale in the United States in the Western world Uh, in particular Maybe the whole world because like a month ago I think a lot of people would say, I don't even know where the Ukraine is, right? I don't know anything about the Ukraine. You know it's a country, you know it's a nation, but you don't really know much about it. And now we are being introduced and educated to a people that seems to be, um, to have very strong character and be very brave, those sort of things. We're, we're seeing that, we're introducing ourselves to that, and they, they appear... You know, from what we're seeing through the lens of media, they appear to be, uh, to have a leader that has the sort of grit, like an old Western hero, right? You know? And so we're looking at this person and there's this strange fascination with Zelensky. There's this introduction to us to where I see a lot of people that are sort of not, I, I, I don't know, infatuated or are just really interested in the person of Zelensky. But then at the same time, They really wish they had never even heard of this person because of the circumstances and the situation that's going on. So it's weird. It's it's, it's interesting through that lens to be introduced to another people to find out what they're about, who they are, and the impact that they have, even halfway around the globe. Today we start a new series called Imitators. Imitators. We're looking at this very small New Testament book called First Thessalonians. Originally, it's what we call an epistle. An epistle means a letter. So we're looking at this very, it's only five chapters long. You can read it super quick if you wanted to. And we're going to spend a couple of weeks in it. And what I thought we would do, if it's okay with you, is just this morning, I just want to introduce to you the people of Thessalonica and particularly the people called the church within Thessalonica. We're going to start that series off. We're going to start this series off on imitators or called imitators by introducing to you these people. See what they're about, how they got that way, and then the impact they made. And, and make no mistake about this, they had a massive impact, a huge impact. And I can prove that. You're about to do a multi-week study on this group of people. Huge impact, thousands of years later. So let's, let's talk about it. Let's learn from it. But first, let's pray You pray for me and I will pray for you. God, thank you for the opportunity to share with this church, these people gathered, your word. God, I pray that we are encouraged to become more and more like you as we participate in what we call the church. May we become disciples of Jesus by mimicking or imitating the church and may we then have an impact, be examples to those around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Anytime I start a new series, we need to give a little bit of context. I need to talk a little bit about the book before we talk about what the book talks about. The book is, the letter is, from Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, it says so right there in the very first words, to what's called the church in Thessalonica, or the Thessalonian church. Thessalonica was an important city for for two main reasons. There was a major road or a highway that went through it, but it was also a port city. So for military and trade, it was a very influential city. Paul uh, was intentional about where he did his work. And so as Paul was going around sharing the good news of Jesus, he targeted cities of influence. And the idea was to influence that city, knowing that if the gospel takes root in that city, then it was going to have an impact on the surrounding area. The surrounding area of Thessalonica is called Macedonia. All right. So Macedonia is the region. Thessalonica is the capital city of that region there. You can read a little bit more about Paul's stop there in Thessalonica by going over to Acts chapter 17. Now we're not gonna go over to Acts 17 this morning, but you could just make a note of it. Uh, maybe even in the margin, you just write up at the top, Acts chapter 17. In fact, that's what I wrote here in my Bible. Just a few verses to talk about Paul's stay there. It's really very short, but really pretty interesting. When Paul gets there, he, he, he goes and he targets a few people Meaning that he first dealt with the Jews, those people that had a similar background, a similar religion to his. And he shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And, and some of them, um, the Bible says, were persuaded. Also, it says that some of the Greeks who had been uh, following Jesus, or not Jesus, but Yahweh, um, Greeks who had become Jewish, were also persuaded. Another really fascinating thing, and I think you should just pick this up. This isn't the point of the sermon or anything like that. It said also influential women or women in leadership were uh, part of the founding of the Thessalonian church. So that's just important and something to keep in mind that women played an extremely huge role in the founding of the Thessalonian church. Paul does that. And some of his detractors, some of the people that were speaking against him, they said this about Paul. They said, this guy who is turning the world upside down has visited us and he's causing us a bunch of problems. I don't know about you, but if I was to have a testimony or, or, you know, something, I think that would be one that would be kind of fun. If everybody's like, oh, that's the guy that turns everything upside down. Paul did that in a very, a very good way. And so Paul... Does a little time there. Uh, he, it's not like prison, uh, but it sounds like that, right? He, he spent a few weeks there and then he travels on. He was kicked out. He went to a city called Berea. And as he's going to Berea and then he goes over to Corinth, Athens, and then Corinth. And as he's over there, he writes a letter back to them. That's what we get here. First Thessalonians. Here's another interesting thing about the book itself. The letter, the book itself. This is more than likely the first, the oldest of the completed books in the New Testament. All right. So I know it's not first in order of your book, of your Bible, but this is the oldest one written about AD 50, meaning that about 20 years after Christ ascends. And so this one is the oldest and more than likely it's the oldest. And if that's the case, then that means in verse one, when he says to the church of the Thessalonians, that's the first time in written form that this group of people who are following Jesus are called a church. It's a word we use all the time. But this is the first time we see it written down, which is significant. Before that time, they were most often referred to as the people of the way. The way. You know why we got that? You know, it's like Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. They had a certain way about them. They had a certain lifestyle. And so they are the people of the way or they were just called Jesus followers or Christians, Christ-like ones, right? So this is the idea of church. And this church is described... As Paul writes this down to this original group of people that he really, really likes, he is describing what a Christian church looks like. What they are all about. And that's the first thing that we're going to look at before we do though. It reminds me of... Schlotskies, y'all ever been to Schlotskies? Anybody? My kids somehow pronounce it weird. They always say Schalotskies, and we, every time it's say and they it like, "It's Schalotskies." We do that whole thing where they they keep going Schalotskies, no Schlotskies, Okay, never mind. You know, and their slogan is "Funny name, serious sandwich," right? Y'all, y'all know this song. Funny name, serious sandwich. Thessalonians, if you will allow me to be cheesy, it's funny name, serious mission. All right. Funny name, serious mission. Let's look at what they're about. This is what the church is about. Let me read to you I'm gonna read uh, verse 2 down to 7 We always thank God for all of you That's Paul's famous Timothy talking about the Thessalonians making mention of you constantly in our prayers This is what we recall. We we, we think about this in the presence of God our Father three things your work produced by faith your labor, motivated by love, and your endurance, inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that you ha- that He has chosen you. We know that He chose you because, verse five, our gospel, the good news of Jesus, did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit. You may not have caught it, but just real quick side note. Verse 3, God our Father, at the end of verse 3, Lord Jesus Christ. And here in verse 4, the Holy Spirit, all of the Trinity is mentioned there. And with full assurance, you know how we lived among you for your benefit. How we lived among you for your benefit. That's Paul just saying for their good and his glory. Verse 6, and you yourselves became imitators, copycats of us and of the Lord when in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. Verse 7. And as a result, you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. All right, so listen, this is what Paul says. This is what they are all about. Describing the church for the first time in written word, we recall in the presence of God our Father, your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. All three of those phrases are easy to understand. You get it, really. You can pick it up. And they're easy to understand as units, right? Work produced by faith. We can study that and we can look at that. We can, your labor motivated by love. But what I want to do is blow the whole thing up and look at the pattern that, that Paul is using in the text. You can, you can notice the pattern. Look, he uses uh, similar words. Your work, your labor, your endurance are all what? Produced, motivated, and inspired by what? Your faith, love, and hope, which we often say your hope, faith, and love. And the greatest of these is love, love, right? So this is Paul's pattern that he's using to really kind of blow up um, or, or to emphasize what the church was all about. What this group of people, these called out ones, that's the Greek word, ekklesia, means these called out ones, they're in this extremely influential capital city of Thessalonica. It says, you were working, laboring, and enduring this hard work that was transformed by faith, hope, and love. Now, if I was to ask you for the very first time to describe to me church, now, now that I've said this, maybe it would, it would shade your description a little bit, but let's just say we were walking down the street and I, I ran into you and I found out that you were claiming the name of Jesus. You were a Jesus follower, a Christian. And I asked you, well, then describe to me church. I'm not sure many of you would use words like work, labor, and endurance, right? Now, maybe, maybe enduring sermons would be a part that you, you would like, we endure this, you know, that sort of stuff. But I don't know. Work, labor, and endurance are not usually the words that we describe the church. We, we would describe, I mean, like, it's fun. It's okay. It's like, it's, it's nice. There's nice people. We get together. We sing some songs. We listen. And then we leave and we go eat lunch. That's, that's church. Rarely ever would we think in in the the mindset of work gloves and steel-toe boots and, and sweat for the glory of God, right? That's not really the way we think about it. But I want to really kind of push into that and ask you, why isn't it? Why isn't it that we don't see our faith in the mindsets of working hard, of doing something, of accomplishing things? This is hard work, he says. Furthermore, check it out. Your work, labor, and endurance are all nondescript. If I, if I ran into you again, we're on the street, we're going to do that a lot. We're just running into each other. I'm asking you questions. And we're shaking hands. I'm getting known. It's like, hey, so, so what do you do? What do you do for a living? And you respond, I work. Okay, great. So, so what is that? Like, what, what do you do? Well, I, I just labor? just do some labors, you know, I work, I labor, I do a little of endurances, you know, that's what I do. It doesn't mean anything, right? He says your work, your labor and your endurance, it's not answering the question or, but it is. Here's how it is answering the question because again, it is blowing up our preconceived ideas. When we think of church, we don't often think of work, but if we were to think of church in the guise of work, we would think of things like volunteering, right? Hanging out with children, uh, nursery care, uh, student ministry, small groups, or maybe uh, the, the worship team, the singers or, or the, the coffee makers or the greeters or something like that. And we've got, a, we've got an army of amazing volunteers around the church. We would think that way, right? But, and hear me on this, the Thessalonian church didn't have a vacation Bible school. They didn't have a coffee bar. All right, they didn't have a choir. They didn't have these things that we commonly think of in the work of the church. And all that stuff is good, obviously. All that stuff is good and beneficial and something that we should be involved in. So then what is he describing here? He is describing here how you would have answered the question. When I say, so what do you do for a living? And you respond by saying, I'm an engineer with such and such company. I teach third graders. I'm a, a surgeon that, that cuts into people's eyeballs. You know, that sort of stuff. You, you would define what you do. That's what he's talking about. That these people were so radically changed by Jesus that their Monday through Friday, their nine to five, their fishing boats and, and welding rigs, their surgical tools and their accounting papers were all redefined by Jesus. That He says, I remember because of what Jesus Christ did in your life, how your world was defined by faith, hope, and love, the work, the efforts that you did. This is what these people are all about. They are all about making this difference in their lives. And look as a church we have uh, both kinds of goals. We have goals or we have both sorts of ways that this is lived out. Like I said if you read Thessalonians you're going to see that Paul loves this church. He's just constantly talking about how great they are and and I am saying this without any sort of reservation. The way Paul felt about this Thessalonica is the way that I feel about you. We are this kind of church. I am impressed by your work, your labor, your endurance, your faith, your hope, and your love. We as a church, this, um, this year is our 100th year. This is our centennial celebration. And so we set six goals all right, And those six goals all have 100s to them. right? So we are praying that God would um, bring 100 people to be baptized in and through our church. We're praying that uh, 100 new families would connect to our church. We're praying that on Easter Sunday we're going to give away over $100,000 to missions. To everything outside of our campus. We are praying that there will be at least 100 people who will, during the summer, only the summer, Um, We want people to go on mission all year long. But during the summer, we're going to send 100 individuals out on mission. We are also, we had this goal of praying for 100 consecutive hours. Start to finish, 100 straight hours. No gap. We were going to pray. And we did that. We already did that. We started our year off praying that way. We also had this other idea where we were going to create what's called um, the Next 100 Fund. So as we look back and celebrate what God has done, we also look forward and we want to set up a fund, which is not like um, dollars. You can't like write checks to it, but it's more for the things like um, in your retirement, you plan ahead and you're saying in the future, I'm going to give this or in my will or in my directive, I'm going to give this to the church. So that's different. Before we didn't have like a means or a mechanism to do that. And we've set that up. So in all of these things, in these six goals, these goals that are to benefit other people and to glorify God, I see our church working hard for those things. If you have uh, the, the monthly email or if you go by and, and pick up the printed version of it, you see this little box down on the bottom and it's showing that we're making progress on all of those goals. And that's good. That's exciting. I'm also encouraged because as I move throughout the community and go about my daily life and this sort of stuff, I'm hearing stories. I'm hearing things about how uh, the people of the second family, they are, they are optometrists for the glory of God, right? That they're sitting in their offices and they're showing pictures at the back of your eyeball and going, this is the glory of God, right? I know this. I've heard this. I've felt this. I've, I've experienced this. I've also experienced and heard stories about um, Second Family members who, who own um, storage unit facilities and are using that to minister to people as they are transitioning in their lives from one move to the next or, or from this stage of life to that. And we could go on forever and ever and ever about people that are using their everyday lives, their labor, their work, their endurance changed by faith, hope, and love. This is what these people were about. And so I get excited about that. I, I, I want to know, well, how did they get that way? I'm all about it. I'm all about making a difference in my community, but how is it that they got that way? You can see how they got that way in verse six. Verse six says that you yourselves became imitators and you yourselves became imitators of us and the Lord when in spite of of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy. Sorry, I lost my place. With joy from the Holy Spirit. You became imitators, meaning that you became monkey see, monkey do, copycats, the follow the leader sort of situation. This is what you were doing. This is what they became to do, that they uh, followed us. Here's an important distinction that I wanna make in this text as we are studying it. And it's this concept that's a little bit controversial. All right, you ready for some of this? You ready for a little bit of controversy? It's Bible nerd controversy, so most of you are just not gonna care, but I'm just gonna tell you this. It is the responsibility of the church to make more Jesus followers. Here's, here's, Here's another way to say it. The church makes disciples, not the individual. We are called by God to help facilitate people becoming more and more like Jesus, not more and more like me. More and more like Jesus, not more and more like me. So when he says that you became imitators of us, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, he's saying that you mimicked what you saw consistent with Jesus in us. He says the same thing in verse 14 of chapter 2. For you brothers and sisters became imitators of God's churches in us. Right? So they were imitating us, not him. Notice that Paul doesn't say, look, you did all these great things because you were being imitators of me. Or you were becoming imitators of Timothy or and the only time that Paul even mentions that I just thought about this the only time that Paul even mentions the idea of imitating the individuals he was telling them to stop doing that stop pretending like you're in this group or that group or that group you are to imitate and to be mimicking of Jesus you are to put or you're to see Jesus in the church and model that sort of behavior so notice that he says or notice that this is not only imitating us, but it's also imitating the Lord. As I've already pointed out, the, the trinities are God, the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. That you are not only supposed to be imitating the church, but you are to imitate what the trinity, what, what God is doing in and through the church. Those um, characteristics. Here's the danger. Let me explain it in another way. So keeping all of that in mind, that's the good side to say it. Let me say the bad side of it. The alternative, or what I would say is the other, that it, that the individual is supposed to be making disciples. There's a danger in that, an inerrant danger in that. And you'll see this all the time. I've seen this in my own ministry. I've seen this in church world. That there will be this charismatic leader that comes about who is either the pastor or a ministry leader or, or she's a great communicator or she's just a, a really friendly mama and she's got all these people over or he's just a really cool dad, uh, dad or guy. And um, so everybody's coming over there, they're fishing together or working out together or something like that. And they call it life on life. They call it this discipleship journey, this sort of stuff. And then all of a sudden you'll start to notice that there's a lot of littles of the one, right? They all start dressing the same. They're all saying the same words. This group is always quoting that person. It starts to feel a little odd. It starts to feel a little CrossFitty to me, you know. I'm just kidding. All of you CrossFit. I'm joking. Um, that's great stuff. All right. But it's starting to feel that way. And you're starting to go, this is a little weird. And the real proof is in the pudding, to use the southern phrase, which I have no idea what it means. But the proof is in the pudding when, when something happens to the charismatic leader. Like they go on to another church or they move out and everybody like little ducklings follows them out of the church because listen to me, they were never discipled to be like Jesus. They were never committed to the church. They were committed to the individual. And that's not anywhere in here. That's not what we're supposed to do. Furthermore, here's the issue. There is no one individual who can perfectly display for you Jesus. Only Jesus is perfect. And so by his design, He gave us this whole group of people that we all mesh together. And when we are loving, when we are hopeful, when we are faithful, that we can see that and mimic that. I'll give you another uh, way to think about it. I want my boys to grow up to be like us. Not to be carbon copies of me. I have huge flaws. I have some strengths and huge flaws, but what I hope that they would see is that they would see the, the individuals in our church that are faithful, that are, that are long-suffering, that are, that are kind, that are generous, that are truth with grace, that they would stand firm, that they would look at this group of people and say, these people are diverse, and yet they love, that they forgive, that those harmed or wronged them, but they forgave them and they love them now. I want my boys to grow up to be like us. Another way to say this is I am not concerned about making more me's. I'm concerned about making more of we. That we are together good and worth mimicking. We the church. And so that's what Paul was encouraging them to do. He says that that was amazing. That this is the way you became the way that you are. is because as people looked and saw faith, hope, and love. Hard work in the abilities and in the functions of the church. That they mimicked. That is what they did. And this sort of mimicking pays off. Primarily because they are a people. They as a people become more and more like Jesus. And that's the goal of our discipleship. That every individual would become more and more like Jesus. But there's also another benefit. It had a a rippling effect. That other people were benefited and other people were helped by this. You can see that in verse 7 and 8. He says, as a result, you became examples. You were following the example, and now you're the example to all the believers in Macedonia—that's uh, that region in which Thessalonica was the capital—and Achaia, which was a southern, the next southern region in which Corinth was the capital. All right, so two whole regions, for the word of the Lord rang out from you not only in Macedonia but Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone. This testimony, this whole situation, they became examples in their region. So this would be be like our church becoming an example to believers in um, all of the southeast or all of Faulkner County, that sort of thing. That's what happened. They did that by mimicking Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. The examples that they became are interesting as well. Look at the way they became examples. You were an example. The truth was ringing out because of your faith, because of your faith, your trust in God. Let me be real clear here. Churches tend to fall on two sides of this spectrum. There's a bunch of different ways to do this, but I'm just gonna paint with broad strokes here. Churches tend to either trust God, they come together, they pray, they sacrifice, they trust God to restore marriages. They trust God to make an impact in their community. They trust God to, to provide um, a father for the fatherless and food for the hungry. They trust God in all these ways. And they, and they exemplify that by being generous and sacrificial and working hard and laboring and enduring. Right? They trust God to make a difference. Or what they tend to do, and nobody does this, I don't think anybody does this intentionally. But what they accidentally end up doing is they trust in the skill of the, of the musicians. Like we're going to build something, we're going to make a difference because, um, because we have our own um, albums or our, our own uh, Spotify, whatever. Whatever kids are calling it, music that is downloadable. We have that, right? Or in the, in the abilities of the preacher or the communicators because that preacher is funny or engaging or entertaining or keeps my attention, those sort of things. So they'll build that or they'll, or they'll put their faith and their trust in the beauty of their building. They have a really nice structure and so this is what's going to make a difference or in the strength of their budget. This is what's going to make a difference. They tend to fall on these two sides of things. And what this church became uh, an example was that they were putting their faith and trust in God, not in those things. Listen to me, these things are good and I believe we have all of these things. I can't speak to the preacher one because that's just weird, but the rest of them, I can speak to those and I believe we have those things, but these things are just a tool. These things could go away tomorrow and it doesn't change what we do. These things could all disappear and it doesn't change the hope that we have, the faith that we have, the love that we will show because our faith and our trust is in God, not just God, are not only that, but also if you can see in verse 9, that they also were known for their faith and they were known for their turning from idols. Look at verse 9. For they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turned from, or to God, from idols. Because remember I said just a minute ago, churches will either put their faith in God, or they'll put their faith in ability, skill, possessions, finances that's what churches do and that's what we do individually you'll live your life influenced by God, God sets the direction or you'll live your life living for the good and for the glory of your own skill your own abilities, your own possessions your own finances that they turned from those idols to Jesus it says in verse 10 and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. So Jesus, our true hero. Jesus, the one in true. So this church was all about working hard for the good of others and the glory of God. They got that way by mimicking the church, by mimicking those who are believers that where, where these people acted consistently with Jesus and his teachings, they mimicked that they faked it until they made it right. They did that. And the effect, the net result was that they themselves became examples to others in faith, trust, and in repentance. But keep this in mind. Whereas I am saying, and it is true, that it is the responsibility of the church to make disciples. What I am not saying is that your role in that is that you just bring your friends to the church services and let the preacher do it. That you just bring your friends and let the smoker. It is all of our because they became examples in faith and repentance, and those are two things that we can't do. You have to trust God. You have to repent of the idols. You do that as we collectively make disciples. So there's a couple of applications, a couple of things that we could carry with us out of here. And the first one is be like those that are being like Jesus and others will be like you. Be like those that are being like Jesus and others will be like you. This is the name of the game. This is what we do. Look around. This is why you got to be in a small group so you can know how other people are being like Jesus. You come into a room like this and you're like, I'm not really getting anything out of church. So that's a whole different conversation. But you're like, I don't know how I would mimic these people. I don't really know them. I don't know how they live their lives, how they parent, how they work in their, in their jobs, how they are, are, are faithful children and students and all this. I don't know that. That's because you're not in a small group. You get in a small group and you learn all that. Be like those who are being like Jesus and others will be like you. That's the impact that we get to make. Also, what is your church known for? And what are you doing about it? The Thessalonian church was known for their hard work and their faith and their endurance, right? Their faith and their repentance. I know that I'm the pastor of this church, this collective group of people. I know that. And I know that you are that collective group of people mostly. We have several guests in here, but you are collectively the the church. So let's know that and set it over there and let's just talk like we're not. All right. Let's just talk like we're not. Two sides of this. Let's say that you are a part of a church that is known for whatever. Let's say it's known for generosity. Let's say your church is known for um, sacrificially cooperating with others. That you are all about getting everything you can to those who need it. Whether it's food or love or starting a church in a neighboring town so that people can plug into the gospel, into community. Let's say that that is what your church is known for. Well, my question for you is... What are you doing about that? We got too many people in churches that love their church for a bunch of things that they're not contributing to. You know, my church is super generous. Well, how generous are you? Well, I'm not. Well, then why not? See, it was a church thing, but every individual had to cooperate in it. Or let's reverse the coin. I hear people sometimes say, um, "Well, you know what the problem with my church is? They're just not friendly." No, welcoming to guests or something like that. They'll say those kind of things. And my my gut reaction, even if I don't say it because I'm standing on Zateo or something like that, but my gut reaction is to sometimes say, well, then be friendly. You're in that church. You be friendly. And then guess what? The church is friendly. What are you doing about it? Now, when I walk around this community, when I'm living my daily life, uh, people will, the only thing I ever hear is, uh, hey, I'm hearing nothing but good things from second or of second that's, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that exact phrase. I'm hearing nothing but good things for a second. And I believe that that is true. I do believe that. I also don't believe they're going to tell me any different, right? I kind of give this air that I might fight over this church physically, which is accurate. um, But at the same time, I believe that that's absolutely true. But whatever it is that folks are talking about out there, what are you doing about that? What are you being a part of that? I want to make one last note. I don't have a slide for it because I didn't know how to word it. What do we do when the church is not worth mimicking? What do we do when the church is not worthy of imitating? Because there's some of you that are sitting right here right now. You're like, I follow you. I get how you got that. I see first Thessalonians, I buy it. I get this. But there are times when the church is bad, when the church does horrible things. There are times when there are um, pastors or leaders who, take a, to, who abuse like counseling situations in which information or delicate things get outside of that relationship and it hurts people. There are people who know things that should have never known things and it came from that relationship. There are times when there will be leaders in a church. This is, you know a thing that we have to deal with. There are times when there are leaders in a church, whether they're lay leaders, meaning not paid, or they're paid leaders, and they do something evil and wicked and horrible, like say sexual abuse or spiritual abuse, and other leaders know about it and they end up covering it up to protect themselves. That's a horrible thing. Or there are times where I've heard stories where those in charge of the finances, Will pocket some of the finances, or they'll misspend the finances, or they will um, use their positions to benefit themselves or a family member. And that's disgusting. That's wicked. It's wrong. I've even seen, on like one of the minor situations, is where a church will have a staff, like maybe just a pastor or multiple staff people. And because of the nature of the work and because there's nobody sitting there breathing down our neck, that sort of stuff, they, they are paid. They are compensated to do a full-time job and yet they don't. They're mailing it in. They're lazy. And that is stealing from God and his people. Those things are horrible. And so I know that there are some of you that are sitting here right now and you're thinking in the back of your head, man, I appreciate you. I can get all of that. But there's this, this is not, this is not nothing. This is documented. This is true. This isn't just somebody that doesn't like the church saying this. I love the church and I was hurt by the church. What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? Stand up and mimic that. Well, what I would say, and I know that this is hard to hear. It's two things. First of all, let me just say, I am sorry. That should not have happened. It should not have happened and it was wrong and it was gross and Jesus is mad at it. I'm sorry about that. But also, when those people did those things, they acted contrary to what we believe. Not in line with it. They went rogue. They went selfish. They went evil. And you're like, yeah, but it was like the pastor and it was like the three elders and and my small group leader. Yeah, all of them, all of them went rogue. All of them went selfish. All of them fell to some sort of temptation. All of them were wrong in that situation. They should be confronted. They should be stripped of their influence and they should be called back to repentance and restored into the relationship. They should, that was wrong. It wasn't, they are not representative of us. You can point to a bunch of documented evidence, and it's true. I'm not discounting it. All of that's true. But I can also point to a million good stories where when we are consistent with what we believe, is the most beautiful thing on Earth. That we go running into the conflict. We call out our missionaries. Like, we, we tell our missionaries, like in the Ukraine, Stuff's about to go down. We need to get you out. And they say, no, I'm staying. And they turn their homes and their churches into shelters. That we are funneling money and food and resources over there so that the hurting, the innocent, the desperates have resources. This is who we are. This is what we are. Sharing the gospel to people that are hurting. They went rogue. This is what we actually are. And so I want to say I am sorry. You are valid in your hurt. It's documented. It's true. I'm not excusing it or defending it. But I am telling you that's not who we are. It's not. Have you all ever heard of fruit molds? Some of you, like, I'm not saying mold on your fruit. That's what I joke about. We buy fruit at our house so it can sit in that bowl until it goes bad while we eat our cookies, right? And so. I'm not talking about mold on your fruit. I'm talking about fruit molds. They're these little things that you can buy. Well, little or big. And um, they're shaped like things. Like I saw one that was shaped like a little heart and it's plastic. And you put it over like a baby um, strawberry. And as the strawberry grows, it will take the shape of a heart. All right. And so you pop it off when it's done. And you got this like bright red heart-shaped strawberry, which I I assume it's very romantical, right? You know, that's, that's something you could use to your advantage, right? And so that's cool. I've seen other ones. I saw one. This one was probably the one that was most interesting to me. It was about this big and it was the shape of a, Franken, a Frankenstein head, right? And they put a pumpkin in it and the pumpkin grew and, it, and when they were done, they took the mold off and there was a, a Frankenstein head pumpkin, all right? Whoever has that for the carving contest wins automatically, right? Had eyes and mouth and I didn't do that, but you know, that was cool. I also saw one that was a tube. So these ones were like containers. One was a tube, um, plastic tube. You put a a cucumber in it and it's shaped like a heart, like a long heart tube. And the, the cucumber grows and becomes a, a heart shape. And so you can slice it up and have these little heart cucumbers, which is not romantic. (laughs) It's not. So like, if you give your girl um, uh, like uh, heart-shaped cucumbers and your boy gives his lady heart-shaped strawberries, he wins, you lose. (laughs) Ain't nobody want heart-shaped cucumbers. Nobody wants cucumbers at all, all right? And so it was amazing to me that somebody's like, you know what, will be, no, stop that, right? I'm not bring all that up because it's super obvious. I know how you can all tie that together in your brains. But here's what I really want to point out. When we talk about mimicking. Or copycat. Or monkey see, monkey do. Or imitation. We, like when's the last time you used imitation in a positive? We just did. But when's a You know that's an imitation purse. Those are imitation shoes. Whatever. We don't use that in a positive. Imitation leather. But we were we we the church were created called out to take the shape of jesus in this world to be heart-shaped strawberries and to show and convey faith hope and love that's what we were called to do thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of second baptist we hope that we will see you in person this next sunday